videotape letters uh, written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes as a demon called Screwtape, uh, training his nephew, Wormwood, on how to be a demon who tempts humans. He says this, uh, The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him the picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Screwtape also adds, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. In the past eight weeks, uh, as we've looked at spiritual warfare, we haven't denied the reality that there is a flesh and blood component to the struggles we face in this life. Look, we understand people hurt people, right? Uh, people do some terrible things to other people at times. People sometimes hurt themselves. There is a real battle with sin. We're not diminishing that reality by simply saying, you know, the old saying, the devil made me do it. We're not saying that. We're not saying that. We also understand that there are very real challenging facing and staring down at people as we speak right now, vocationally, financially, and so on, that they have no idea what to do with. We're not denying the reality that this life has real threatening challenges. What Paul's reminding us, though, whatever we're going through, it's not limited to what we see in front of us. There's something larger than what's at hand. Our lives are in the middle of a war between God and Satan for our souls. And scripture says that like a roaring lion, Satan is bent on devouring God's people. He will do whatever it takes to snatch you away from trusting in God. He has a very real influence in our lives. I think one of the best examples we see of that in the Bible is Job. Uh, Job was a wealthy man with a large family. But the most important characteristic about Job is that he was a man of God. He was blameless. He was righteous. In fact, so righteous that he would offer sacrifices for his children every time they had finished feasting with each other just to make sure that they didn't sin against God. And yet Satan comes to God in Job 1. And he says, paraphrasing, well, the only reason he's serving you is because you blessed him. But if you take away everything he's got, he'll curse you right to your face. And then starts this onslaught that we see starting in Job 1, verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from, from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. If that's not enough, it goes on. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. 
and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Some commentators believe that the series of events here, these servants coming to Job one after one, only took 39 seconds to find out all his wealth was gone, all but four of his servants were dead, and all ten of his children also were dead. Now, folks, that's a nightmare. Nightmare. The, the, the chapter goes on to tell us that, you know, that, that wasn't enough in itself. His wife, even later on, so frustrated that Job would cling to his faith, told him to curse God and die as she left. This example is written to remind us that the devil is real. That the devil hates us and will do everything in his power to vanquish our faith in God. There's an arrow pointed at you. And the only way to stand against his attack is to put on the whole armor of God. Very quickly, the belt of truth to be grounded in biblical truth. The breastplate of righteousness to live as new people in Christ. The shoes of readiness to experience the peace of God even when things around us aren't as peaceful. The shield of faith, trusting God himself to protect us no matter what fiery arrow Satan may throw at us. The helmet of salvation to live in the reality that by the grace of God through faith in Jesus we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And then the sword of the Spirit helps us not only stand our ground in the truth, but regain, reclaim ground that Satan tries to capture or take in our lives. Every piece of armor is vital. And I'm going to argue to you the most important form of protection we see throughout this passage is here today. You can argue it actually helps us put on the armor. It's, it's praying in the Spirit. Now when you hear that phrase in the Spirit, it should remind you of of a time Jesus talked to a Samaritan woman in John 4, 23 through 24, where he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seek. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. Ephesians 2.18 says similarly, It's through the spirit we have access to the Father. The Spirit awakens our hearts to God. The Spirit makes communion with God possible. Without the Holy Spirit in our hearts, our prayers don't go further than the ceiling. It's through the Spirit that we have true intimacy with God. So to pray with the Spirit or in the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. And when that's happening in your life, when that's happening in my life, we'll notice three characteristics about our prayer life. The first is, we'll pray urgently. Next, we'll pray for one another. And we'll pray missionally. If you take notes, don't worry, it's going to come up again. First, we'll pray urgently. Paul says in verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. So Paul sets a tone here by saying all or always four times. His way of saying, keep your foot on the pedal when it comes to prayer and don't let off. And then he refer reaffirms that by saying, on all occasions. It's obviously suggesting there is never a time that prayer is not critical. When times are good, you should pray. When times are hard, you should pray. When you're encouraged, you should pray. And when you're discouraged, you should still pray. 
One of my favorite movies is War Room. In that movie, Miss Clara is an older saint who is trying to encourage this woman named Elizabeth, her realtor, to start praying. And the realtor comes over one day, and they're talking back and forth, and the topic of prayer comes forth. And Miss Clara says to Elizabeth, how would you describe your prayer life? Would you call it cold, or would you call it hot? And she said, neither. So to get her point across, Miss Clara brings her a cup of coffee that's lukewarm. And Elizabeth says to her, Miss Clara, do you like your coffee room temperature? She said, no, mine's hot, baby. The point is, prayer is not something we should do from time to time. Prayer is not something we should simply do where we're in a crisis, where we're in a bind. Prayer, it becomes or should become as natural as breathing. It should be woven into the fabric of our lives. And if that's not enough, Paul further drives home this point when he says, pray with all kinds of prayers. Whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, whatever you may think is little or small that God is not, the answer is always to pray. Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way as he thought about prayer and its place amongst spiritual armor, he says, or God's armor, he says, when you cannot use your sword, and even when you can hardly grasp your shield, you can pray. The weapon of all prayer is of the handiest kind. Because it can be turned in any and every direction. Prayer always with all prayer. Groaning prayers. Weeping prayers. Prayers that are made up of single words. Prayers that have not a word in them. Prayers for others. Prayers for confession. Prayer for thanksgiving. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The movie that chronicled C.S. Lewis's uh, marriage with Joy Gresham. Um, C.S. Lewis marries Joy right after she's diagnosed with cancer. And the movie goes on, and as they struggle with what people in that situation struggle with, the, the life questions and, and faith questions, and Joy eventually dies. And as a friend is trying to comfort C.S. Lewis, he says to him, I know how hard you've been praying, and I know God is answering your prayers. It's kind of one of those things you're trying to find the words to say, but you really don't know what to say. And C.S. Lewis replied, that's not why I pray. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. How do I cultivate that kind of desire and fire to pray to God. Well, Paul goes on to say midway through verse 18 with this in mind. And he's connecting it to the first half of what he just said. He's just said, pray urgently, right? Pray, right? Right? Pray urgently. Pray urgently. So with this in mind, or to this end, pray urgently to this end or to this goal. And he gives one goal would be, continuing, he says, be alert. Be alert means to stand guard, stay awake. Be on the lookout for any potential tent or, or threat. If I could talk or threat, stand your guard. A shepherds would need this as they would guard their sheep through the wilderness, lead their sheep through the wilderness. It was a twenty-four-seven job. You never knew when a wild animal would come and try to attack your sheep. You always had to be on guard. 
watchmen would be stationed in watchtowers during the night of their cities to make sure they were ready and alert just in case the town was going to be attacked unexpectedly. Paul is saying similarly, we need to pray to stay spiritually vigilant against attacks that are coming often, nonstop. You never know when it's going to come. Be urgent. Same idea is captured in Matthew 26, 41. When Jesus tells his disciples as they're with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he dies, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer keeps us sensitive to the reality we're in a spiritual battle. And when you don't pray, you're asleep. You have no idea that the battle or the adversity in front of you is actually an attack from your enemy. I think of a time I was counseling a couple. Um, I know this couple for years. And uh, one spouse was struggling with addiction. And you could tell there were little glimpses where they wanted to get, they wanted to get help. They wanted to, 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 to fix this problem, this situation in their lives. And yet the other spouse validly was angry and bitter for years that their spouse had been going through this and really just dragging them through the mud with this situation. But they couldn't realize in their anger that they were becoming vindictive. And they are actually so oppressive that they were kind of becoming the reason that the spouse with the addiction, kept driving closer and more into it. It was very clear. And as much as I tried to talk to this spouse who was hurt about the reality, you know, there's grace and there's mercy. I know you're hurt, but we need to try to come alongside your spouse here and maybe help them get to a position by God's grace where they can get on the right track to healing. It was like I was talking to the wall. I was crazy. What did I know? Now, this is a person who loves the Lord. This is a person I know knows the gospel and the power of it and the ability of God to do miracles where we can't. They get it. They get it. But they had fallen asleep. They had started drifting from church. You can tell just by their reaction to things. They didn't want anything to do with God at that moment. You get what I'm saying to you? When we are in pain, you know what pain does? It has a way of putting blinders on us. It has a way of narrowing our vision so the only thing we see at that moment is what we're facing. And when that happens, the battle becomes only flesh and blood. Does that make sense to you? The only thing you see at that moment when that's happening is the neglectful spouse or the defiant child. Or the fact that you are depressed and you are discouraged. Or debt coming out of your eyeballs. Or personal sin that you have tried and tried and tried to overcome. It has not worked. And you've come to a place where you've said, I just need to hide it. There's no hope. There is absolutely no hope. Sleep we don't even realize as Satan has convinced us to live like we're defeated even though we have victory in Christ. You know what prayer does? Prayer opens our eyes to the reality of what's going on. It also opens our eyes to who our real enemy is. And to start fighting against him by the grace of God, rather than the person right in front of us. Is this making sense to you? You pray constantly. 
because it opens our eyes to the realities of what's going on. Romans 12, 12, Paul says three statements that seem to fit perfectly together. If you've been following my track, it says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. When we persist in prayer, especially during the hard times, it changes prayer from something we have to do to something we can't help but do. Our eyes become open to the threats around us. When we pray in the Spirit, we'll sense a need to pray. We also will pray for one another. Paul finishes in verse 18 by saying, And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, if you've been paying attention to our our series, I hope you have, eight weeks here, um, we've been focused on, right? Us, ourselves, personally. And so Paul takes a major shift here by broadening the reality that, guess what? Every single person in here is in a battle with Satan. We're in this battle as a church together. It's not a one-on-one thing. We as a body in Christ are in a spiritual battle. Does that make sense? You look throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul's all about this. When we get saved, we're not just saved to Christ, we're saved into a body. We're saved into a family. And just the same way that a soldier would not attack a whole army by himself, spiritually, we need our whole army as we go to war together. Amen? We need to consider these realities. I know Paul believed in this because he displayed it. You look at every letter that Paul writes, most of them, there's this praise report of how he's been praying for that particular church. Even in this letter, he tells them in in 116 how he's given thanks for them. In chapter 3, 14 through 21, it's a prayer that they would come to know just how much God loves them. Everyone he came across became a brother, a sister, a family in Christ that he grew a tight knit with through prayer. Now that's very foreign to American Christianity. We kind of do our own thing. We live in our own, we handle our own problems, right? But to Paul, there was no such thing as me and the church. It was just a church. And he was a part of the church, his family in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, put it this way. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another. Or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray. No matter how much trouble he causes me, his face that previously may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. The face of a, far, of, of a forgiven sinner, this is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. See, that's the heart behind intercession heart behind it is that I see your faith is just as important as mine. And I start to actually see your battles as something I partner with as well. When my relative goes through something, my sister, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe she has a tragic situation happens in her life. I respond to her, or I respond to someone here that that happens to the same way I respond to her. We're family. There is a real bond that starts to get formed as we pray for one another's needs and situation to a point where I don't have to do this 
I want to do this. The more you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the more you lift up their particular needs, the more you find yourself wanting to do it more and more. A few years ago, I read a book uh, by C.A. Carson. It's called Praying with Paul. And in this book, um, he talks about how he had a Rolodex. Remember what a Rolodex was? Some of you may not know what a Rolodex is. But on that Rolodex, he had people, students specifically, that he prayed for throughout the years. Every student. Every single one. Now, if you know nothing about D.A. Carson, he's this well-renowned teacher and preacher. He's a busy guy. And yet, he found himself doing this. And on top of that, if students would email him or send him a letter, he'd hold on to them so he could pray for them specifically and update his list. And one of the things about that book that really shook me is I don't do that. I was convicted by the reality that, you know what, if you're not intentional about praying for other people, you're not going to pray for them. And so I got to a point, I confess I need to get back to this point, but I got to a point where I wrote down every single member in my church back in Berlin, family members and so on, I'd put it in front of my journal, and I'd have a day of the week where I would intentionally pray for those people. Folks, I need to get back to that, okay? I'm, I'm admitting that to you. And I'm not saying that's what you need to do. But what I am saying to you is you need to be intentional. We get prayer lists every Wednesday with the prayer requests that are put into these dish. Maybe that's something that could be taken home and prayed for throughout the week. We have life group members that have real concerns we share back and forth with one another. Maybe that's something we could pray for beyond our time together. You get my point. There are different times, different points where we can make sure we're intentional about praying for one another. And when we start doing that, no matter how busy we are, things change for the body of Christ. Amen? They change. Pastor, I'm busy. You have no idea. What's the main motivation for this? Love. Love. First John, we're told, we show our love for God by loving each other. There is no greater expression of love than to pray and fight for your brothers and sisters in Christ for prayer. Amen? Amen. When we're praying in the Spirit, we'll pray urgently. We'll pray for one another. Lastly, we'll pray missionally. In verses 19 to 20, Paul makes a shocking request. He says, talking about prayer and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me give you a quick picture of Paul's circumstances. He's in a Roman jail right now. He's in a Roman jail because he was accused by some traditional Jews of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Now back then, that was a capital offense. He did not do that, but they accused him of doing that, and so he got thrown in jail. Everyone knows he's being falsely accused, but he has to stay in jail. Until finally, after a couple years, he appeals to Caesar. And on his way to Rome, an angel reassured him that he would stand before Caesar. So it's very likely that Paul is referring to this very moment, time where he would finally get his chance to stand before the Roman tribunal and Caesar, who's narrow at this point. And if you know anything about history, Nero was one of the most ruthless persecutors of Christians there was. Ruthless, ruthless. And in this position, as great as Paul was, it was intimidating. It was intimidating. 
that he spent years in prison waiting for this moment. He wants to seize it. And he asks that God would literally open his mouth and put the message in him like the prophets of old so that he can speak with courage. The request is almost like, you know, you're a young guy and you want to ask a girl out, but you're nervous and you're tongue-tied and you're just stumbling over your words. I'm not saying that's what Paul is doing, but you get my point here. It's the same type of attitude of, of a nervous man wanting to make sure he brings forth things the way he should. 2 Timothy tells us, 2 Timothy 4, 16, 17, he tells Timothy that God gave him the strength to stand, to do this. No one stood with him, but by the grace of God, he was faithful and bold even before Nero himself. Pastor John Piper once said of prayer that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. That's an interesting way to put it, huh? He goes on to say, I chose you and appointed you, Jesus said more so, that you should go and bear fruit so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It's John 15, 16. And Piper continues, I give you a mission so that your prayers will be fruitful. Prayer is for mission. It is mainly for those on the front lines of the war effort to call into the headquarters to send for help. One reason, or one of the reasons our prayers malfunction is that we try to treat it like a domestic intercom for calling the butler for another pillow in the den rather than treating it like a wartime walkie-talkie for calling down the power of the Holy Spirit in the battles for souls. Paul's prayers for the gospel. Paul is praying that the gospel would be shown, manifested, spoken clearly through his life. Now, he could have prayed, and it would have been fair to pray for his release. He could have prayed for relief. We're not suggesting that it is wrong to pray for his circumstances, but we're trying to shape around the reality that the gospel was Paul's life. He was all about that. He had sincerely left everything behind to pick up his cross and follow Christ. And when you do that, it's going to shape how you pray. When you leave everything behind, yes, you will pray for relief in the moment. Yes, you will pray for things to change. But there's something weightier in the back of your mind and in your heart that God would be shown through you in this. That Christ would be shown through you as you remain faithful in spite of what may happen. You know people are watching you. You know that? As you're struggling? Unbelieving spouses and children and siblings and so on are watching to see how you, Christian, will respond to what you're going through. Will your prayers be shaped by, God, let Jesus be seen through me no matter what? No matter what. It changes the way we pray for ourselves. It changes the way I pray for you when you pray for me. Yes, we want relief. But we are so concerned about people facing an eternity without Christ in hell. That's weightier. Weightier. Amen? There's a man who had an Oldsmobile. And um, <laughs> he uh, more so borrowed an Oldsmobile from a friend. And it had diesel only on it, on the ornament. And he looks at the rear of the Oldsmobile. It says diesel only. 
He looks at the dashboard. It says diesel only. So naturally he gets diesel. Wrong answer. I guess the engine was converted, so now it takes gasoline. And so he had to explain to his friend, why'd you mess up my car? Here's the similar comparison to us as Christians. We have human written all over us. Human written all over us. All over us, we know we are human beings. But when we get converted, something changes, doesn't it? Yet we keep trying to feed ourselves the same stuff. We keep trying to fight the problems in our own strength, in our own will. Yet we need prayer. We need the armor of God. We need power from the one that can help us fight spiritual battles we can't fight on our own. I want to end today, and I want to end this series by helping us realize no matter how talented we are, no matter how um, who we are, what we've done, what people may think of us, we are not strong enough to fight this battle alone. You need to pray in the Spirit to stand strong, folks. Let's pray. Thank you.